Welcome to Big Time Dicks, the show where we take a closer look at the laws and lawmakers fucking up your life. I'm Joanna Rothkopf, Managing Editor at Jezebel. And I'm Prachi Gupta, Senior Reporter at Jezebel. I hope you missed me because I didn't I, say that for two weeks. <laughs> I did miss you, and I it was hard to did take you, your role. I actually said in one you of like the it? outtakes, I said, I actually said, I'm Joanna Rothkopf, and then I was like, wait. <laughs> and then we had to redo it. I love it. <laughs> anyway. Well, you came back into America at just the right time. Okay, let me just preface this. I was in Europe. I checked. I was so good about not checking Twitter. I checked Twitter precisely two times. Like, I scrolled through Twitter two times. The first time was the North Korea nuclear Twitter. Oh, and I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, I can't go back home now. And it was literally, there was no not nuclear tweet in my feed. It was all nuclear war Twitter. And then the second time was right after Charlottesville. So I was like, oh, America is a white supremacist country on the brink of nuclear war. What did I leave? I can never return. <laughs> it was fucking awful. <laughs> oh, dear God. Anyway, let's jump into it. This it's, week... It's not funny. It's literally yet, not funny. It's not funny But it was, it was grotesquely... It's so, so fucking dark. It was, it was messed up to see, for sure. This week, Donald Trump, in the wake of the Charlottesville KKK and white supremacist protest, freaking sided with the freaking neo-Nazis. What about the alt-left that came charging at the, as you say, the alt-right? Do they have any semblance of guilt? This is so what, let me ask you this. What about the fact they came charging, that they came charging with clubs in their hands, swinging clubs? Do they have any problem? I think they do. Go ahead. Do you think that the, what you call the alt-left is the same as neo-Nazis? I, oh, those people, all of those people, excuse me, I've condemned neo-Nazis. I've condemned many different groups, but not all of those people were neo-Nazis, believe me. Not all of those people were white supremacists by any stretch. Literally, he not all nazis Charlottesville. Not all Nazis. Not all Nazis. <laughs> he really did. I mean, what are we supposed to say? Here's what happened, if you don't know, which obviously you know. First, the Charlottesville protest broke out. In response to the city of Charlottesville taking down a statue or a monument of Robert E. Lee. Which, like, who is even like, thinking about Robert E. Lee anymore? Donald Trump didn't respond to Heather Heyer's death. He didn't respond to the violence. He didn't respond to the white supremacy that's, like, clearly marching around in the streets for two and, whole days. And they were chanting things like, Jews will not Jew, replace yeah. us. You will not replace us! Blood and soil, like very, like they're not trying to be subtle about it. They're being very like overt. And the police just sort of like let them. They, they there was no like they really, instances of police brutality like, against the white the, supremacists. Congrats to the police on really defending their right to free speech more than they ever have before. So Donald Trump doesn't say anything for two days, which is crazy because he says something in like. 20 seconds when somebody insults like his hair on Twitter. Unlike you and unlike the media, before I make a statement, I like to know the facts. And then he was like, oh, I condemn people on both sides. And then he was like, okay, I condemn white supremacy. And then at another press conference, he was like, okay, but have you met Jews? <laughs> so he doubled it's down. Like, I mean, the only thing missing from that speech was like a white hood. Seriously. It, <laughs> it was, was like, it was just like, 
It was like David Duke wrote that speech for him. I mean, he praised it afterwards. Yeah, he was like, that's a that's a speech I would have wanted to write for myself. He didn't actually say that, but he was but he very applauded. into it. He, was he very... applauded. All of the white supremacists of Twitter erupted in applause. This week's Dick of the Week are Confederate statues and the dicks who love them. Later on in the episode, we're going to be speaking with Jezebel's own Stassa Edwards about the history of Confederate statues, how they're actually crappy pieces of junk and pretty worthless. It's easier to tell yourself, I think, a myth about where you're from, about who your ancestors are, than it is to say, this is bad. But first, our Week in Weenies. So this week, uh, Joanna and I wanted to do something a little bit different for the weenie section because... As we realized, there are so many weenies, and it didn't feel right to just limit the weekend weenies to three people because there are so many neo-Nazis crawling around right now. So with that, we are going to do a segment called The Golden Shower of Weenies, where we're just going to scream and rant for about five minutes on all the bad people who we learned about this week and how much they suck and why they suck. All right, so starting off our golden shower is Christopher Cantwell. Vice uh, did this documentary, which everyone should watch by Elle Reeve. She hosted it, and it was a documentary on the rally and the violence in Charlottesville. And Christopher Cantwell was one of the head, like, neo-Nazi dudes she followed around who was— um, well, you can hear it in this clip. Here's what he was saying. So when did you get into, as you said, the racial stuff? When— uh, Trayvon Martin case happened, you know, Michael Brown and, and Tamir Rice and all these different things happen. Every single case, it's some little black asshole behaving like a savage and he gets himself in trouble, shockingly enough. Whatever, whatever, whatever problems I might have uh, with uh, my fellow white people, uh, they generally are not inclined to such behavior. And, you know, you got to kind of take that into consideration when you're when you're thinking about how to organize your society. In Oklahoma City. Okay, so exactly. You have to go back to Oklahoma City to talk about a white act of terrorism, Elliot Roger, right? Dylan Roof. Okay, so so now you've managed to name three people, and I'm pretty sure Elliot Roger wasn't explicitly white, by the way. But the thing is, you remember the names of white bombers and mass shooters, okay? Yeah. Can you tell me the name of all 19 hijackers on 9-11 off the top of your head? You can remember Dylan Roof's name. You we can remember Tim McVeigh's name. White people were capable of violence. I didn't say capable. Of course we're capable. I'm carrying a pistol. I go to the gym all the time. I'm trying to make myself more capable of violence. I'm I'm here to spread ideas, talk in the hopes that somebody more capable uh, will will come along and do that. Somebody like Donald Trump, who does not give his daughter to a Jew. <laughs> so Donald Trump, but like more racist. A lot more racist than Donald Trump. I don't think that you could feel about race the way I do and watch that Kushner bastard walk around with that beautiful girl, okay? So Christopher Cantwell sounds like a real stand-up guy, right? Yeah, a few days later, this neo-Nazi asshole was (laughs) crying into a camera because police want him for arrest. He's actually crying like a a baby, like a neo-Nazi fucking baby. I want to be peaceful. I want to be law-abiding, okay? That was the whole entire point of this. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? And our enemies just will not stop. We've been assaulted. They, They are threatening us all over the place. Chelsea Manning, this tranny fanatic, has a picture of himself, herself, 
talking about curb-stomping Nazis with a picture of his boot coming down on somebody. The second weenie is John Dowd, who is President Trump's personal lawyer, who, like, kind of inexplicably forwarded this email subject line, the information that validates President Trump on Charlottesville. And it's from, like, a conspiracy theorist nobody. And, like, one of the quotes from the email is that you cannot be against General Lee and be for General Washington. There is literally no difference between the two men. And he forwarded it to, like, his friends and people from the Department of Homeland Security and conservative journalists. And then the New York Times asked him for comment. And he said, you're sticking your nose in my personal email. People send me things. I forward them. And then he hung up. Next up is Peter. Okay, I can't. I do not know how to say his last name. But I am not going to apologize for it because he's an asshole. Uh, Svetanovic. Anyway, this guy was seen at the white nationalist protest holding the tiki torch and chanting against Jews and people of color. And his photo went viral. And after it went viral, he was shamed appropriately on the Internet and by everyone who's not a racist And then was, like, upset that people were branding him a racist. And this is what he said to one news outlet. He said, I did not expect the photo to be shared as much as it was. I understand the photo has a very negative connotation, but I hope that the people sharing the photo are willing to listen that I'm not the angry racist they see in that photo. Bitch, like, that's exactly what you are. There's only one reason that photo went viral, and that's because you are an angry racist at an angry racist rally with other angry racists. (laughs) These white supremacists are very eager to be like, I'm not a white supremacist after being a white supremacist. It's like they're literally literally holding signs saying like, I am a white supremacist. Yeah. And And then then they're saying someone asks them about it and they're like too puss to say it. Why would you say I'm a white supremacist? Why would you say it? Maybe because you're holding a sign that says I'm a white supremacist talking about white supremacy. I don't know. I don't know how much clearer we can be. Next weenies, Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, two very prominent Jews in the administration who have also said that they have a lot of influence in Donald Trump. Everything, you know how there's like the meme that every time Donald Trump does something, you can find a tweet that he's tweeted in the past that directly contradicts it. Mm -hmm. The same thing is true for Jared and Ivanka. Every time they say they're going to push for something, the opposite happens. So they're like, we have so much influence. And then the opposite happens. Like it's happened with climate change. It's happened with trans bathroom rights and stuff like that. And the same is true to Jews being like, we tried to get him to condemn Nazis, but we couldn't do it. And it's like, okay, guys, what are you even doing other than releasing secret statements to reporters and being like, they really tried, they really feel upset about it. (laughs) And also, like, to add on, all the Jewish people in the administration who are still there, all the rich Jews who, like, for some reason missed the entirety of their Hebrew school education, which is all like, remember the Holocaust, remember what you're supposed to do when you see this again. And they're all like— I don't know what you're talking about. This isn't that. Even not the Jews, just any anybody. I mean, like, I mean anyone, but this specific sure. segment is the Jewish people who theoretically had a lifetime of education about what to do when you spot a Nazi. <laughs> and it's like, tell somebody. <laughs> if you see a Nazi say something is the one lesson. <laughs> well, one of many lessons. Next up, Jeff Sessions, our attorney general, who, while he did uh, condemn— Nazis, a very bold stance for somebody in this administration to take. Uh, 
he also supported Donald Trump's response to Charlottesville, in which Donald Trump did not really condemn Nazis. Jeff Sessions said he uh, explicitly condemned the kind of ideology behind these movements of Nazism, uh, white supremacy, the KKK, which he didn't. The next one is Hope Hicks, who has been silent, but also is silently maybe going to accept the role of director of communications. She's been here the whole time, just like quietly snaking her way to an important job. And it doesn't seem that there's anything that Trump can do to deter her from that. So congrats to her on her soon-to-be promotion. The next one is also the police who have arrested the woman who— Okay, so in Durham, North Carolina, they pulled down a Confederate statue. They toppled it to the ground. It was a victorious moment. That's illegal. One of the women who came forward, Takia Thompson, who did it, has been arrested and charged with two felonies. Meanwhile— Not a single white supremacist KKK protester has been charged with anything, Um, except for the man who drove the car straight into the crowd in Charlottesville, who killed Heather Heyer, who has been charged with second-degree murder. But generally, I'm speaking about the protesters who have gotten to go home. Oh, but, I mean, Joanna, some of them might— be losing jo- their jobs because of this. So You're right. One I mean, guy has sadly lost his job at a hot dog stand. That poor, poor, poor white I've, supremacist I've man. Sad for him. And also, speaking of the police, the police at in Charlottesville who just like let I know we already mentioned this, but they just like let the white supremacists do their thing. Whereas, like, can you imagine if that was a protest full of black and brown people, like, how quickly the police would have been on that? I mean, we saw—I mean, yeah, we yeah, saw— Yeah, because we, you don't have to imagine seen it. it. Yeah, because yeah, that—yeah, because we see it all the freaking time. And it looks like it—it <laughs> it is horrifying. The next one—here are just a bunch of stupid ones. The Fox and Friends guest who said that the Confederate flag and the LGBT flag are the same thing. But you know what's really interesting and a really incredible irony here is the same people that are demanding that the Confederate flag comes down are the same people that are insisting that the rainbow flag goes up. These two flags represent the exact same thing, that certain people groups are not welcome here. Bitch, what? (laughs) What are you saying? (laughs) And also the guy... In the Did you guys see the GQ article? There was a white supremacist wearing the Vanguard America uniform, that, like, stupid white polo and khaki pants. And this GQ reporter starts filming him, and he starts getting, like, chased by protesters who aren't white supremacists. And he, like, takes his shirt off. So he's like, no, it's just a joke, guys. It's just a joke. I'm not really a white supremacist. It's a joke. Look, I took my shirt off. I love how <laughs> the, the the inherent contradiction between – with all of these white supremacists so far is that they project this very, like, tough guy, hyper-masculine image, and then, like, within two seconds, like, you expose them or confront them, and they're like, no, 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 I'm so sorry. It's not actually what I believe. It's just, like, this, this, and this, and this. It's like... Right. Like, (laughs) oh, okay. Okay, you big fucking asshole. Um, Next guy... Oh, let's say Texas Governor Greg Abbott. It doesn't have anything to do with this. He just he just sneakily passed a law that requires women in Texas to buy insurance for abortions. Yeah, we featured <laughs> him as our weenie last week for that. But it passed bill, this week, was, right? Yeah, no, it yeah it passed uh, like two days the House ago. last week, and then I guess 
he signed following it. the Senate, and yeah. he signed it, yeah, into law. Great. Just, just like a call out to that guy. Yeah, he definitely needs to be called out. Yeah. Also, um, every single person who is still sitting on the sidelines after because they're too numb to the fucking news to be outraged right now. Yeah, I don't really get I don't really get that reaction. I don't I don't understand. Speaking it. of which, another weenie are my Republican friends on Facebook who have either stopped speaking. I mean, I've got to be honest, I don't have that many because I've muted, like, a lot of people who I found too frustrating to deal with. But two specific ones, I haven't seen them in 10 years. They used to be my really good friends, but they were, like, my two very good Republican friends. And they've both become, like, lifestyle personalities, (laughs) so they don't speak about politics anymore. So, like, all of their Facebook posts are, like— about the, like, their lifestyle blog. The defense is just like, oh, I'm just not a political person. Right, they've, but they've just, just like, okay, checked you're, out you're of politics. You're just not a good person, basically. Like, you're not even, try- like, this isn't, this is just like, should we treat people equally? Yes or no. I, I, I am also not <laughs> making a blanket statement about, like, Republicans in general. Many of them have condemned this, finally. It, like, took them freaking long enough. But the people I'm friends with on Facebook have made a very convenient pivot to lifestyle and away from politics. Yeah, fuck those people. (laughs) Also, I've been reflecting on all the racists I knew growing up who probably did vote for Trump. Mm -hmm. So fuck all of them. Specifically, Jessica from preschool, who when I was four— Did you know she was racist in preschool? Yes, because I wanted to play house with all the girls. And she was like this blonde-haired, blue-eyed— you know, bitch. Bitch, yeah. <laughs> and I asked her three times if I could play house with them, and she fi- she said no the first two times, and finally she was like, fine, but only if you're the servant. <gasps> yeah. Oh, yeah. And you know what? <laughs> I bet you she grew up to vote for Trump. It does sound like she has the background to do it. I think so. So <laughs> also fuck her. Oh, and then finally Steve Bannon, who is definitely the architect of— Donald Trump's white nationalist agenda, but he also just did an interview where he was, like, condemned white supremacy. He, like, called a journalist from the American Prospect out of the blue. So there were kind of rumors that Trump was going to get rid of him because I literally don't know, like, whose opinion Donald Trump respects and doesn't respect at any one time because he's saying all the Steve Bannon opinions, but then he's like, no, I might get rid of him. Anyway, Steve Bannon calls this guy kind of maybe in response to that, but maybe not. And according to the New York Times, it has a good summary of what he did in it. He contradicted the president's position on North Korea, badmouthed his colleagues in the administration, vowed to oust a female diplomat at the State Department, and mocked Trump officials who fear the consequences of radically changing trade policy, saying they are wetting themselves. And he also said that the right-wing fringe, the alt-right, are a like white supremacists, are, quote, a collection of clowns. And he said that the more liberals who talk about identity politics, the easier it will be for them to crush Democrats again. I mean, Steve Bannon is king of the alt-right. He is, like, Breitbart ruler-in-chief. I don't know. He also speaks in very, like, apocalyptic terms all the time. All All the time time. it's apocalypse. The man looks like he's been through an apocalypse already. He does. He he really does. I think someone Maybe from the Root said that he looks like he has grayscale, which I think is pretty accurate. All right. Well, that was very cathartic. <laughs> <laughs> now let's learn something. <laughs> 
Have you ever experienced turbulence on a flight and wondered why? And you can see all the terrain around you. Uh, you've got no issue with visibility or anything? No, everything's peachy. Maybe you've sat on the tarmac for hours wondering why your plane isn't moving. Well, we're outside here. They're saying the ramp is closed. They won't let us park because of uh, Air Force One. Listen in on the conversations between pilots and air traffic controllers on the Air Traffic Out of Control podcast. 510 declaring an emergency. There's smoke in the cabin. I need to make a landing right now on 31 left. We have the most interesting, wild, and funny ATC recordings you will ever hear. Check out Air Traffic Out of Control wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Now joining us is Stasa Edwards, Jezebel staff writer and art historian. Thank you, Stasa. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> so we're here to talk about Confederate statues. You've written a couple articles about it this week, and they were just exactly what we needed to contextualize what was going on. So one of the things that I learned this week uh, when we saw the statues being taken down, like in in Baltimore and elsewhere, is that a lot of these were actually erected in the 1900s, which is half a century or more after the Civil War ended. So why did these statues crop up then? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons, but I think one of the biggest one is that there's kind of like an organization called United Daughters of Confederacy that still exists today. It's kind of a neo-Confederate group that you can join if you're a woman who's a direct descendant of a Confederate veteran. And this group is very popular after the war and um, becomes really solidified in the Jim Crow 20th century. And these women begin raising money across America. There's kind of local chapters outside of the South, too, in New York, in the West as well, to erect these monuments all over America to their Confederate dead. And many of them have kind of like generic kind of grief-stricken words on them. Like I think the one in North Carolina said something like to the boys in gray or something like that. So they're very generic and there are sculpture companies as there have always been that kind of popped up all over America marketing specific sculptures to these groups. So they could essentially like buy some kind of monument for a very low price. So just like a thousand dollars or so and direct it in these public spaces. And of course, certainly in the South, there is a willingness to let them put these sculptures and these monuments in front of courthouses, in front of state houses. I mean, they're all over South Carolina's state house grounds. And it's this moment, like in the 20th century, that I think we're like kind of far enough out from the war that it becomes something they can format as, well, we're just sad. We're these sad widows and fatherless daughters of these Confederate veterans. And this is a moment, too, where the lost cause narrative really takes hold in America. This idea that the South lost the war because they were just like these benevolent gentlemen that couldn't fight in this way that the North did, that they were just tied to their kind of statehood ideals. You know, they just really love Virginia. They really love the South. This narrative that does as much as it can to remove it from slavery. You know, you see it pop up immediately after the Civil War, but by the 20th century, it's very embedded in the culture. And that mixed with the Jim Crow era, especially in the South, is kind of just like a petri dish for these monuments to be constructed. 
And then again, you see these monuments have kind of a second life again in the 1960s. Actually, I'm curious about the second life that you mentioned. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, and I, uh, there's an Atlantic article that was published earlier this week about the fact that there are numerous sculptures in National Statuary Hall of Confederate generals that were sent there by the states. And many of the southern states have Confederate soldiers. And as the Atlantic noted, that many of them were sent there in kind of like mid-20th century in protest to the desegregation of the South, which many viewed as something that was being forcibly done by the federal government. So again, another infringement on this kind of romanticized issue of states' rights, which again is another kind of cloak for racism. So like the talking point for people who are marching to preserve these statues is that they're beautiful, they're our culture, these are like metal and they're heavy and so they must be important. (laughs) But as you said and as you've written, they're like slavery-themed tchotchkes. Is that right? They're like these mass-produced parade-resting soldiers, one of the stances that they're in, that just like multiple statues are in. Like they came out of a factory. Is that right? Yeah. And I mean, certainly that's the case of a lot of public art. A lot of public art is like mass produced. And what we perceive as value of it is something that culturally we've given to it. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's expensive or good or interesting just because it's in a public space. But for some reason, we've kind of granted that if it exists in a public space, if this idea has been posited and materialized in stone or metal, that it's somehow good, right? Just on an aesthetic level. And of course, that's not true. I mean, there's terrible public sculpture all over the place. This idea that sculpture or that monuments particularly represent history is a very, it's a very slippery idea because what history is it representing? I've seen the arguments, and I know that Donald Trump tweeted this morning about, you know, oh, this is our history of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. But it's really the history of a kind of reassertion of neo-Confederate ideas by white women. But that's not the history we see, right? Because we've imbued in it a kind of fallacious narrative of the lost cause. And that's why they were built. So that that idea, the lost cause, could be posited as an idea that exists in the world and is therefore valid, right? Instead of being something that is completely, not only wrong, but is completely antithetical to the preservation of the union, right? To America itself. So it's basically like, I mean, you wrote, it's the conflation between history and culturally formed memory. It's just basically whoever had enough metal and whatever machine you use to put that metal into a man. Right. I mean, whatever kind of civic group, and in this case, it's it's overwhelmingly the United Daughters of the Confederacy can kind of raise this money and put up a sculpture. And so there's a kind of united effort by this group to do that. And of course, that has kind of like lingering effects well into the 20th century that our public spaces have been vastly altered by the United Daughters of the Confederacy featuring a group of men that we're just supposed to treat as kind of these examples of great heroic men. And that in itself is a cultural memory, not the kind of reality of that. I was, um, Gary Gallagher wrote a really good book on the lost cause. And in it, he was talking about the building of Stone Mountain in Georgia, which is this giant bas relief in the side of a mountain of a bunch of Confederate generals and where the KKK rededicated itself. And he was quoting a Pittsburgh newspaper from the early 20th century that was just devastated 
that they were putting up this giant monument to traitors that had murdered Americans. So the discourse on Confederates as being good men has radically changed in a hundred years. And it's been facilitated by these images, right? That somebody cared about them enough to build a monument so it must be okay. And you just wrote about another example. It's not specifically a Confederate monument, but of J. Marion Sims and the mayor Mm -hmm. of Columbia, South Carolina, uh, suggested removing that eventually. Can you tell us about him? Sure. So, I mean, J. Marion Sims in many ways is tied, I think, to these Confederate generals because his work is his really barbaric work is facilitated by the institution of slavery and his memorialization denies the existence of slavery in many ways. But he was a 19th century American physician who is generally called the father of gynecology, even though that title is very problematic that is for a lack of better word. That is a title. <laughs> yeah. So he kind of came up with a surgical solution to fistula, which is a a disorder that women can get after birth that involves a lot of tearing and muscle ripping that essentially leaves you incontinent. And of course, this was a huge problem for women, many of whom had many children, right, in the 19th century. Um, And so it was certainly something that people were in need of a solution of and could be very debilitating and embarrassing for women. But Sims, who starts like every doctor in the 19th century, because we don't have specialized fields yet, he kind of starts as a generalist and decides that he's going to come up with a solution to the, the a surgical solution to a fistula problem. So he acquires 11 slave women who have uh, vaginal fistula. He builds basically a shed in his backyard in Alabama and begins experimenting on them extensively until he can come up with a surgical solution. So over four years, he keeps these 11 slave women. Many of their names are lost to us in the shed where he and his assistant, a man by the name of Bozeman, uh, perform multiple surgeries on them over the course of four years without any anesthesia. And he writes extensively about it. What he does is one of the most barbaric moments in the history of medicine, but there are sculptures of him in South Carolina and Alabama and New York. And in fact, Um, Actually, somebody from the University of South Carolina just emailed me to tell me that one of the women's dorms on campus is named after him, too. So, But from this, he comes up with a solution and he becomes very rich, very successful. He performs that surgery on Empress Eugenie in France. I mean, he becomes highly regarded as this physician who really deeply cares about women. But what he did, I mean, even other doctors in the 19th century to contextualize this, think what he's doing is very barbaric. That's high praise from a doctor in the 19th century, I feel like. I mean, like, low Yeah, I mean, (laughs) these are doctors that are, like, taking out women's ovaries in the 19th century because they might be hysteric, and they're looking at him going, that's too much. (laughs) Right, right. talk for a second about, I mean, all these statues of these terrible people exist. Why has it been so hard to remove them once we realize what they are celebrating and how backwards that is? I mean, I think like a lot of people are 
like super reliant on their myths. Like people don't want to hear that their great, great, great grandfather that fought as a Confederate in the Civil War was not only anti-American, but engaged in this kind of long American project of white supremacy in a way that was very violent and bloody. And so it's easier to tell yourself, I think, a myth about where you're from, about who your ancestors are, than it is to say, this is bad. And I think also one historian has kind of posited, and I think very compellingly, that immediately after the Civil War, of course, all of these Confederate generals are almost immediately pardoned. And they're allowed to basically like go home and do with whatever they want to do. And some of them, like Nathan Bedford Boris, go home and form the Ku Klux Klan. And others go home and, you know, are just like average dudes. But that the Union itself, after the close of the Civil War, that the Union, Lincoln, Johnson afterwards, feel very, this need to preserve the Union, right? This is why everybody has died. And so they let them have their myths, that, like this lost cause myth, for the purpose of preserving the Union. And I think also many people have argued that part of this is because Reconstruction is a failed project, right? That most countries don't let traitors, people who try to take down the government, go home and live their lives, right? Most countries execute those people. <laughs> but in America, in order to kind of preserve the United States as a whole entity, I think there's an enormous amount of forgiveness that facilitates this. And then, you know, that goes forward into a kind of space of, well, it's a cultural memory of these were good men who just really love their state. But it's also especially hard to get out of that when it's like there's a statue of them on a horse and not them on a statue being like, slavery is good. Like, how do you make that statue? And then people will look at that and be like, right. okay, I remember the right thing now. Yeah, I mean, some people have suggested, especially when it comes to um, the founding fathers who aren't really an issue right now, but some people have suggested that, you know, a sculpture of George Washington looks really different if there's a sculpture of Ona Judge, a, a woman who ran away from Washington, a fugitive slave that he spent decades, just his entire the rest of his life, just kind of chasing down, trying to get her back, that like Washington looks really different if Ona Judge is right next to him. But of course, we like the stories of heroic good men. We still like those stories, right? They're still overwhelmingly what drives a kind of romantic narrative of history. And we don't like our favorite people to be complex and difficult. Like when Donald Trump gets his statue, it's going to be him like holding his tweeting phone while riding a horse, not him in bed <laughs> with be, his tweeting gonna, phone. Yeah, there's going to probably, it'll probably be like some very like high-tech airplanes in the background. I would imagine, <laughs> yeah. like, I would imagine like this like very Baroque, like 17th century French gilded kind of stuff yes. that really seems like his dictatorial <laughs> style. Can you give examples of any public art, American or otherwise, that does a good job of reckoning with really complicated history? I mean, I think the Vietnam Met Veterans Memorial does that really well. Uh, as Maya Lin envisioned it, it was uh, cut in the earth. And so that's why it starts really low and gets really high because it's supposed to look like a gash into the earth. And then when you walk up to it, it's kind of like polished very high. So when you look at the names, list all the names of people that died, the Americans that died in Vietnam, you see yourself reflected in it. So it engages you in a way that is, I think, very touching. And also the names are very real, right? And it captures this, this idea of the grief of the Vietnam War, but also 
the kind of sense of what, why were we even there, right, by having this kind of gash in the earth. And I mean, of course, when Myelin was commissioned to build the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, it was incredibly controversial because it wasn't heroic and because she was an Asian woman. You know, we accept it now and it's considered a great example of public monument, but its road to being built was very engaged in debates about um, American colonialism and American military power and, of course, race and gender as well. So you also bring up the idea in one of your articles or the idea that some people have that once a public space is finalized and once statues have been installed, that they should be there permanently and that space is unchangeable. As far as you know, is that how public spaces work or is that how they should work? And how are you supposed to properly honor history free of propaganda if our ideas of what is honorable might change? I'm not really sure there is a space where you can make public monuments free of propaganda. I think that they are in many respects, especially when you're building monuments and memorials to the military or to political ideas inherently propagandistic. I think it's a matter of negotiating how to make them more the good accessibly kind propagandistic, of if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> but I think our idea of public space, I think it's kind of like a new idea, this idea that once something is up, it has to stay up. And this is an idea, you know, that if I go and say something in a public space, that it must be valuable, right? Like this is, we've seen this a lot, like this, this debate over monuments is very engaged in this weird debate of like free expression as though it is your right to enter a public space and to say whatever you want without any repercussion whatsoever. I think this is like a particularly like 20th, 21st century idea. And it's become like really magnified in the last couple of years, because if you look at like history and um, we had a freelancer write a really good piece on this, like the history of like public monuments in a way, there is no history in which public monuments and public spaces remain permanently unchanged. There used to be statues of like King George all over America, but the Continental Army tore them down and melted them down and turned them into bullets. And similarly, Roman sculptures all over Europe were all melted. You know, we think of them as these, they were only like marble, but the vast majority of Roman sculptures were in fact like bronze and metals, and they were all melted down to make weapons too. And of course, like every time there's a revolution in the history of the world, um, I don't think that looking at something devoid of context isn't a particularly helpful method of memory. It's a better method of the closure of that memory to proceed to grief or to proceed to romanticism, if that makes sense. I guess I also underestimated the importance sometimes of our public art and what it can mean to people. I definitely underestimated it. Like, I'm shocked. I mean, honestly, I thought that that there would be a handful of cities where it was a problem. You know, Richmond has like a monument highway that's just covered with monuments of Confederates. And I'm like, okay, well, that would be difficult in Richmond. But there's a small city outside of Miami that has a huge Confederate monument. And they're like, oh, well, we're not taking it down. And I'm like, it's shocking to me because like, in my mind, South Florida is like not the South, you know? I mean, I, I mean, I like, there's part of me that like knows Stone Mountain was a site where the KKK was rededicated and it was originally supposed to have like a big altar for the KKK, but the sculptor who also did Mount Rushmore (laughs) died in the middle of it. But I mean, it's like, it's like you can know that, but to see like the actual flames around a General Lee statue is like something that I honestly thought we were well beyond in America. Yeah. But like there are literally people holding torches around Robert E. Lee. Yeah. It's 
Cra- and now the Robert E. Lee family has become like the family of the to give a comment of the moment. Like everyone's asking their opinion about things, which and, feels and just contrasting like, that like rage with of like white supremacists with like the feeling of being a person of color walking past a monument like that every single day and what that must feel like. And yet it's the white supremacists who are acting out and so filled with like hate over one. Yeah, I mean, the way that these Confederate monuments in particular have just kind of like normalized the celebration of slavery in a way, just like in, just like casually, like in front of courthouses or state houses, like really underestimates, I think, and something I, I, I didn't talk about, but certainly is probably a conversation we can have is like the way that it brings this kind of like implied violence into a public space, that this public space is owned by particular people and that these monuments can really be treated as a visual demarcator that these are spaces built by white people for white people in a lot of ways. Stasa, thank you so much for being here. You're just the smartest person I know. Sure. It was great talk. It was great to actually hear your voices and not just see I know. What a pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. uh, Uh, Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Now it's time for our last and best segment, How to Handle the Dicks, where we talk about what we're doing to cope with such a relentlessly stressful administration and national climate. Raji, what are you doing? This week was especially fucked up, I would say. It really was. (laughs) One of the things I did this week was when I went to Krav Maga this week, we were doing like punching and kicking as (laughs) we tend to do. But this week... I had a really good session because I imagined every time I was punching and kicking that I was punching and kicking a Nazi. Yeah, and I was. It was, and great. that's even better because of because it's like a Israeli. Yeah, it's associated loosely with Jews. <laughs> you may you may have heard of them, Israel, <laughs> the Jews. That rules. I mean, I have to say, in our Politicon panel a couple weeks ago. Sorry to even bring this up again, but the panel took a very weird turn where it was like, it's not okay to punch a Nazi. And I, yeah, and I was like. We were both like. You and I were like, uh, uh, oh, because, huh. (laughs) It was weird. We both went in there. We did fight a whole war about this. Where we all as a country decided it was okay. It's it's definitely it okay. more than okay to punch a Nazi. The outcome of World not, War II was like if you need to punch, out. Nazis are fine. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to say now that we're back on our home turf, I think we all agree that we we approve. <laughs> it's okay this to podcast train. Podcast approves punching Officially Nazis. Approves <laughs> of punching Nazis. My how to handle the dicks. Well, so I was on vacation. I mean, just a simple thing. My vacation was very relaxing, as I said, except for the couple times that I read the news when I was filled with a wave of panic. But also, let me tell you something. International travel will really do something to your digestive system. It really messes up when you think you should poop and when you think you shouldn't. And on the trip, I discovered Activia yogurt. I knew what it was, but I had never eaten it. And let me tell you, it's a good product. Not to be a shell for Activia. They have not paid me. In fact, I've paid them. 
<laughs> and I learned a lot in Italy, but that's probably the most important thing, <laughs> even though it's an American product. <laughs> Congratulations, Joanna. I'm very happy for you. <laughs> and your bowels. Same and thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Big Time Dicks, and thank you so much to our guest, Stasa Edwards. This show is produced by Levi Sharp and Gabriella Sierra, with editorial oversight by Kate Drees. Mondin Amofidi is our executive director of audio, and we featured music by Stuart Wood and Aaron Leader. The episode was mixed by Dan Powell. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so other people can find the show. And you can also find us on Panoply, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts. Got a Big Time Dick you want to tell us about? Send a voice note or email to bigtimedicks at jezebel.com or tweet at jezebel using the hashtag bigtimedicks. We'll see you next Friday. And honestly, who knows what the world will look like then. Welcome to Big Time Dicks, the show where we take a closer look at the laws and lawmakers fucking up your life. I'm Joanna. Wow, did I really just start saying I'm Joanna? <laughs> Watch out, Joanna. She's coming for you. Oh, my God. It's even written in the script. I know. <laughs> I'm Joanna.